Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I happen to believe that curiosity, what I often call gentle curiosity, is actually an essential quality or even a skill maybe is a better use of the term for leaders. And it's that curiosity to ask why before you leap to a conclusion. It's a curiosity to try to understand where someone else is coming from, genuinely try. It's the curiosity to, as I heard from a senior executive this week, Imagine what you might learn from somebody you met at any level in the organization, the curiosity to ask what if, to speculate what could be, and the list goes on. So especially in today's world with so much rapid change, so much uncertainty and ambiguity, curiosity strikes me as essential. Yet for some reason in my field, we spend far too little time talking about what curiosity is or how to strengthen your own curiosity, or how to develop a sense of curiosity in your team. And by the way, it's one of the complaints I get from senior leaders is that their teams are not curious enough, forward-thinking enough, curious about what could be enough. So therefore, we have two wonderful experts today to talk about curiosity, Danny Bassett and Perry Zoom, Zerm, excuse me. So Perry Zurn is an associate professor of philosophy at American University and the author of Curiosity and Power, The Politics of Inquiry. Danny S. Bassett is the J. Peter Skirkenich Professor of Bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania and has received a MacArthur Fellowship at 2014. Congratulations to you. That is a big deal for those who don't know about it. And for our purposes today, they are the authors of Curious Minds, The Power of Connection. So Perry and Danny, welcome to the show. Thanks Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. I'm delighted. I am so and now I have to start at the beginning. How do we get a professor of philosophy and a professor of bioengineering writing about curious minds? What got this journey started? I think it got started when we got started. Denny, do you want to take it from the beginning? Yes. Yes. So um, we uh, grew up together. Uh, so we are twins um, and we were homeschooled um, from, you know, pre-kindergarten through 12th grade. And um, our, I think we were exposed very early to a very particular kind of curiosity that you see evinced in the book. Um, and that is a curiosity that is very interdisciplinary, asks questions across disciplinary boundaries, and also one that is very um, motivated internally. Uh, so in our homeschooling experience, our mother was um, asked us frequently at the beginning of every semester what we wanted to learn about. So she would focus our curriculum around the particular places that we were excited to learn. And she would pull information from very different disciplines around that same topic. So maybe the topic was birds, for example. She would pull, um, you know, the biology of birds, the medical history of birds. Um, She'd pull ecology and environmental science, um, legends about birds so that we could, you know, understand um, from a, a 
sort of historical perspective what birds were there for in the way that we think. And so anyway, in general, what she was doing was demonstrating to us that each area of curiosity we wanted to pursue, we could pursue and we could do so from a very multidisciplinary perspective. So I think that that has stayed with us in our the way that we approach the scholarly work in our two fields, but maybe particularly this book, um, why a, a sort of bioengineer and a philosopher come together. Perry, maybe you want to tell that part of the story. Yeah, so I was in grad school uh, writing about the philosophy of curiosity, and Danny was in a postdoc studying the neural flexibility, which is how the different um, structures in our brain kind of talk to one another. And, and they were kind of focusing on how that flexibility is really important for learning. Uh, so I was working on curiosity, Danny's working on neural flexibility and learning, and we just suddenly realized, you know, there's a lot of resonance here between what we're separately focusing in on our fields. Um, and so we got together and we just started talking about curiosity. It took, you know, several years. We've written out 23 papers together, collaborated in all kinds of different ways. And then we said, you know, I think we have something new to say about curiosity. And that's this book. Okay. Well, I'd agree with that because I've been interested, as you can tell from my intro, in curiosity for a really, really long time. I think it's an important quality. And I could tell you in the psychology field what the papers have been about curiosity. And somehow this is different than what that mainstream is about. So I'm I'm excited to hear about this one. Okay, I love the journey. Interdisciplinary study, a topic, weave it all together, classic experiential education kind of format. And clearly it worked as both of you are professors now um, and doing great work. So something must have been right in that education. All right. You say that you want to redefine curiosity as the practice of connection. Huh? What do you mean? And why do you think it needs to be redefined? Yeah, curiosity has for not just centuries, but for millennia, thousands of years, been defined as this drive to acquire new information, right? That's what we do when we're curious. We want new information. We want to understand something new. We want to get that information and then go use it. And that is a useful way of thinking about curiosity in some instances, but we think it misses something really fundamental about what curiosity is doing. Curiosity for us is not this drive to acquire information. Rather, it's a capacity to connect in ideas, connect one idea to another, connect facts to facts, experiences to experiences, people to people. When we're curious, we get social about that. That's part of what it is for the human species to get curious, uh, to work with one another and build knowledge together. All of our knowledge structures share a lot with one another. Um, so that's that's how we're redefining curiosity as a capacity to connect. And then this has incredible implications for neuroscience, network neuroscience specifically, which Danny is particularly expert in. Okay, I can't leave that one dangling. Danny, what's the connection <laughs> for neuroscience? Well, so I think an important um, way of framing the contribution that this new theory has is that um, when you connect pieces of information, you can actually 
engage in cognitive processes that you couldn't before. So that's where the newness comes in. So let's think about what cognitive processes you can engage in when you just acquire bits of information, okay? So what you can engage in is the sort of, um, I'm going to take this piece of information out of a cabinet of curiosity. I'm gonna pull it out of the shelf and I'm going to admire it and look at it. It's a nice decoration, it's a nice ornament and I'll put it back into uh, onto the shelf in the cabinet of curiosity, right? So independent pieces of information are good to look at and good to put back. Is that what we do with knowledge or do we do something more? I think that we do something more. And I really like um, what John Dewey wrote about this topic. Um, he said, knowledge is such a network of interconnections that any past experience will offer a point of advantage from which to get at the problems presented in a new experience. And so what Dewey is illustrating here is that um, knowledge is this interconnected pattern of pieces of information. It connects back into the past. It connects forward into the future. And you change your mind about how you are going to engage in that future, given what you know about the past. All of that requires connection. It requires connections between pieces of information, between different times, between the information and myself, between my decision-making and the new um, pieces of information I'm gathering. All of that allows for us to engage in our world in a really meaningful way that isn't possible when we think about information being independent units. So there are a completely new set of cognitive processes we can engage in when we think about curiosity as a connectional approach to knowledge. All right. So two connection points for me on this one. One is what you're describing of the connection of a piece of knowledge with other pieces of knowledge past in looking at the future applying in different ways reminds me of the work in neural networks. So if you think about how um, networks are programmed today, for example, and the ways in which we've been modeling learning with neural networks, I don't want to overwhelm people with the background on that one, but that's what it sounds like. We're mapping how people are connected, how ideas are connected, and not unlike how we would model um, a network connection inside an organization. Same principle, nodes, connecting points, who's connected to where, and we end up with this neural map, if you will, or map network. So is that the idea you're talking about? Dan? Yes, that's exactly the idea that I'm talking about. So absolutely, it can be present in a neural network. It can also be present in an organization. Organization yes. network. All right. Now, I want to go backwards, though, to Perry, I think something you said that when we're acquiring new information, it's not about acquiring new information. So I can get a piece of information and I can compartmentalize that and stick it on my shelf and it's a piece of information and it sticks there and may be useful for a trivia game, but maybe not useful for much of anything else. So, okay, explains my brain for sure. But that curiosity comes when we're connecting ideas, connecting people, um, connecting bits of information. All right. If we look at some of the best work around innovation, what I think you find is that the best innovations are taking an idea from one area and dragging them over to a completely different area and applying those principles in a whole new way, like something from bioengineering applied to um, how leaders work. Okay. <laughs> so that's what you mean by this notion of curiosity is connection. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a specific style of connection. We we talk about several different styles of curiosity and that one in particular, this, this one that's more innovative, that likes to bring together two different things that just don't occur together. That's one particular style, I think, of connection that's super important. 
Okay. All right. Well, with that, um, I want to talk a little bit about your, you have these three styles. Actually, it's not three styles. It's three plus, but we'll start with three. Tell me what, what those are, why we need styles. Sure. Well, we, we got down this rabbit hole because um, the attempt to define curiosity has its own frustrations, as, as any attempt to define anything is frustrating. Um, but actually, when we go about trying to describe what curiosity looks like in practice, there's a lot of really rich um, material that we can use there in our own lives, or also, for me, in the history of sort of Western intellectual thought, which is my, my, my expertise. So looking back at all of these ways of talking about curiosity over thousands of years, over and over again, one of the things I saw was, you know, there's these three kind of types of curious people that keep showing up in this literature. And it would be great to pull those out and say, wow, look, you know, just because you're curious in this way doesn't mean you're going to be curious in that way or that way or that way, right? Um, and the more we understand the unique ways in which each of us are curious, the more we'll be able to sort of channel that and use that or have a better role in an organization based on, right, our, our specific style of curiosity. So the three styles are, we talk about the butterfly, the hunter, and the dancer. And the butterfly, or we use the older term also, the busybody, this is someone who's interested in kind of knowing anything and everything, maybe about the organization, you know, what's happening in this corner and in that corner, and what have you heard this morning on the web, right? Like, what? just what's going on? Just tell me everything. The hunter is someone who's much more focused really wants to zero in on figuring out something in particular and doesn't like getting distracted. And then there's the dancer. Who is that innovator who says, wow, you know, I was talking to this person, you know, over in this office. I was talking to this person over in this office. We need to get these ideas together. We need to see what can happen. Okay. So a butterfly who in some ways that sounds like gathers bits of information randomly, we might argue, from all over and the more the merrier. Right. Right. A hunter who's focused on a topic area, an area of interest, drill deeply, know everything about that topic, what I might call an expert, mm -hmm. and a dancer who wants to gather bits of information, but do something with that, connect it, integrate it, abstract it, some variation of working with it. Is that? Absolutely. That's great. Okay. All right. Now, just for the fun of it, you have at the back of your book a speculation that there might be a whole bunch of other styles. Um, these are the three ones we want to focus on. I want to come back to that. But just for the fun, give me some of your other favorite styles that you think might emerge eventually. I really love the octopus. Um, so the octopus has an amazing body with three hearts and nine brains and 2,000 suction cups on eight arms. Um, and I think about that um, animal and that animal structure as something that evinces multiple different kinds of curiosity at once. Um, so not a single style, but multiple styles at once and does that in a way that is um, mentally imaginative, um, has an affective component in terms of the heart, and then also is just very connected um, with its senses to the world around them. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think there's also uh, one of my favorites is the inchworm. <laughs> Okay. Uh, like, what is it to have inchworm curiosity? You know, I mean, you're steady, you might be slow, but you're, you're really kind of intimately connected to the ground of knowledge on which you're sort of working and moving. Um, 
And when people notice, you know, it just brings a smile to their face. So I don't know. I think I think an inchworm curiosity is just as viable as something like, I don't know, an eagle, right? Who can just right. cover all kinds of ground really quickly and soar into the sky. They're both important. Okay. All right. There's an animal theme here. Is that because you just have a fascination with animals or is there some other deeper meaning behind it than this? Yeah, this is because we think that, you know, I, I mean, I drew those styles, the busybody hunter and dancer from Western intellectual thought, but there's all kinds of places you could look for styles of curiosity. And we wanted to look not just to what humans have said, but to what creatures do, because we are creatures among many, and okay. we can certainly learn a lot from okay. other creatures about how to practice curiosity. Okay. All right. I Okay. So let me go back to the grounding part, which is the focus of the book which is these three styles. And you've drawn the three patterns. You give it your own name, but you've drawn it from the history of intellectual Western intellectual thought. So there's a lot of grounding in philosophy and history and inquiry and so on for these three particular components. And I could speculate that they probably map tightly with any number of personality profiles mm -hmm. and how those profiles prefer to do any number of things. I can imagine we make a lot of connections there. I won't bore everyone with that speculation, mm -hmm. but I suspect there's a lot of parallels in the personality profile literature. Okay, so I've got them. Give me a little bit of a description. Can you give me an example of each of these three in practice? Kind of so we get a better sense of how that might work in an organization or even in a university. Yeah, Danny. Yeah. So I think in a in a university, or maybe can I do this in the context of a project. Yes. So maybe there's a person who's working on a project and that could be um, at a company, it could be at a university, it could be anywhere. Um, at the very beginning of a project, you, I often will engage in more of the butterfly type curiosity. I try to gather lots of information from lots of different sources. I don't necessarily yet know where the key trail will be that I will need to follow in this project. So I open, I'm very open to experiences at the beginning. Um, I go to conferences that are a little bit outside of my area of expertise. I listen to talks. I listen to um, recorded talks online. I, I I gather as much information as I can in a pretty open way. And then once I've identified a, a, um, a line of art, possible line of argument for the project or possible line of action for the project, then I become more of a hunter. I search for the pieces of information or the people I need to connect to in order to get that project done. And then when I reach the end of a, a project, um, let's say at I, I know this very well in the context of a scientific project, I reached the end. And then the big question is, so what? So I've made this little discovery. I've um, constructed this new algorithm or new app. Now what? Well, now I need to explain and communicate to the world why it matters, why this particular new thing um, changes how we think about that or changes how we will live in this particular way or changes how we think about something else or undercuts an entire theory that was there before. Um, so it, that is much more of the dancer-like um, curiosity at the end. How could this change what's around us? Okay. Um, so there's an illustration of how the three different kinds of curiosity um, can be useful at different stages of a project. All right. And an explanation for why somebody leading a project and biased, let's say, for one or the other is going to get frustrated at various stages in the project, trying to understand how do I bring this to conclusion? 
So I can imagine somebody who is more dancer-like wants to get to the implications sooner than is useful for everyone else and then doesn't take the project to the best conclusion. I can also imagine somebody who's more butterfly-like getting lots of little bits of information feels like um, we're going to gather lots of information, but we never get it anywhere. We don't really drill down in any constructive way. And I can also imagine why if your personality profile is one or the other, or you don't easily shift from one to the other, that you find some people more pleasant teammates on a project than you do other people, um, and why people get bored at different points. So it, it's it's an interesting perspective to think about, especially in the context of project work, where there's no real hierarchy or authority of power. We're just sort of collaborating together as a group. Makes sense to me. Now, do you find that people use all three? Is that common? Is that rare? Do we have predominantly one? I mean, what's your perspective on this one? I think there are definitely single styles that are um, more frequently present in the education of certain kinds of um, individuals. So particularly in science, I think the hunter style of curiosity is valued very highly and is taught very well um, from the very beginning of um, a bachelor's degree all the way through to a PhD. Um, so I think that's interesting because you may then, you know, reach the end of uh, the the end of your scientific training and have really only practiced one of the three muscles mm -hmm. it, strongly, right? Perry, I don't know if you have thoughts on this. Yeah, and and Wanda, I'd love to know what you think about about business in general, right? If if there's a if there's a one particular style that seems to be more kind of encouraged or nurtured among leaders for example, or among employees, um, that would be interesting. But we do have, we did, you know, some experimentation and we do have evidence that there are tendencies, kind of like what you said with personality traits. We tend to be one or the other, even if we can use all three. Right, right. Um, I think you're right that we over, I think in the business world, we over index on particular styles and in two different places. So um, the hunter is what I would parallel to the expert leader who knows everything there is to know about their particular area of the business, their function or their product or their market for that matter. And they drill deeply and they're highly, highly valued and deep, 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 deep. But the problem is they can rarely make a connection off to another part of the organization. So a classic example that we say all the time, a deep specialist in IT can't understand why we need to pivot on this or make this adaptation on this technology or on this programming in order to achieve something for a customer. Or a risk professional who says, no, the risk is a mistake and ignores the commercial impact of taking that chance. So you see that all the time. And I think organizations overvalue hunters. Our education system, I would completely agree with you, trains hunters. And in fact, if you don't get to be good at hunting, then you don't, uh, you know, there's a limit and how far you're going to go from an education point of view. But in parallel, I suspect that senior leadership oversamples dancers. Because if you think about the whole notion of needing to be the strategic, connect the dots, we often say in business, 
um, bring one group together to collaborate with another group, with a third group, with a fourth group, see the opportunity in all of those ideas. That is what you're asking your senior most leaders to do. Now, I don't think people are as good at that as we actually need them to be. And I think when you can spot a dancer really skilled at it, really good at it, you spot them and they're really, really valuable. And they get frustrated because they can't get more dancers. (laughs) Their teams aren't thinking about the dancing part of it. And it's the best description I've ever heard of what it means to be strategic right there. (laughs) Wow. That is fascinating. Yes. Little did you know you were going to go there. We have a, we should write a paper on this one. I am joking with you, of course. I don't necessarily mean that one. Okay, so related to this one, do you think you can develop it? Can I get better at one or the other? And do you have tactics for how I could improve on one versus the other? Yeah, well, maybe starting with a little bit of the science. Um, so we have scientific evidence that people vary in the degree to which they are one or the other over time. And our studies so far have focused on three-week periods. So we don't yet know what happens over the course of years or over the course of a lifetime. We don't yet know whether children are different from adults um, or how that might change in uh, very late life. Uh, But we do know that there is variability over a several week period. So somebody who tends to be more of a busybody on one day will stay relatively like a busybody or butterfly for those three weeks. But from day to day, they may vary a little bit. And the same with a hunter. So that indicates that there's the flexibility indicates that this is something that is potentially malleable. Um, Yeah. Perry? Yeah. And I just think we need more invitations whether that's in the business world, in the educational environment, um, in the professional context, we need more invitations to dance and we need more rewards for dancing. That's risky, obviously, because as a young dancer, you might not you know, be able to innovate in the same product. Like there might not be the same cash out payoff uh, to your innovations, uh, but we need those invitations. We need those rewards structured all the way up and down. Uh, and I think that then we will develop greater kind of dancing muscles for curiosity. Yeah, I think um, today, especially today, when everybody I interact with in the business world is overloaded with work, there is not enough time. They're doing five, six, and seven jobs compared to what would have been done 10 years ago or five years ago. And everybody is in that um, sort of rat maze, run, 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 run as fast as I can to get the task that's done in front of me. So the time to be curious is pretty much gone, okay? And I'm convinced that that's not healthy for us as human beings or for organizations for that matter. So this notion of creating invitations for curiosity and particularly invitations for dance, I think that's a really special one because I think it's what we need more, especially to deal with chaos and uncertainty. Okay, this is a perfect place to take a break. So my guest today, Perry Zern, who's Associate Professor of Philosophy at American University and the author of Curiosity and Power, The Politics of Inquiry. Danny S. Bassett, who's the J. Peter Skirkanich Professor of Bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania. The book we're talking about, Curious Minds, The Power of Connection. When we come back, I want to pick up this thing of what an invitation to dance might look like and what payoff we might get if we spent a little more time in that space. We'll be right back. (music) 
This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Perry Zern and Danny S. Bassett. The book we're talking about is Curious Minds, The Power of Connection. I think the thing that I am most intrigued by in their work in the book and in our conversation is the notion of three different styles, approaches, practices, if you will, around curiosity. All right, so let's start with the notion that curiosity is not just necessarily isolated facts. It is really about connections. And if you think about the human species as a species, what we know is the social component is what has left us, allowed us to survive. I'll get there in a minute. Um, Then these three styles of curiosity, one is the butterfly or the busybody, as you have described, which is just gathering lots of bits of information from lots of different places. Um, flitting around. I, you know, the butterfly is an apt metaphor for thinking about what that might look like. And yes, there may be something that comes out of it, but the butterfly's goal is the accumulation, not necessarily the integration. And then we have the hunter, which is the drill deeply on the topic and know everything there is to know. Uh, what Bill Fisher has called eye-shaped personalities or what I would call an expert personality. And then we have the dancer, which is really the, what I'm going to use as the language of integrator. They're pulling pieces from one side to one area to another area, often from quite broad places that don't have obvious connections. So in the business world, we would say they connect the dots. And we know we're always looking for leaders who can connect the dots, give us the big picture view, um, paint a vision of where the future might look like. I mean, all of those are drawing on some of that dancer philosophy or dancer um, style, as we were talking about. Now, just before the break, uh, Perry, you were saying that we need more invitations to dance. And I think we do, because I get, I'm surprised that very few people, as a nature of their habit or their personality, think about the dots 
Like think about the connections between the dots. Like what's the key point here and what's a key point there? And what do those two key points maybe imply? That speculation, for lack of a better word. And very few people do that. So I'm intrigued by this idea to have an invitation to dance more. What would that look like? Yeah, I mean, it has to be, first of all, I, I mean, I think some of this is social. So so the, those around us, perhaps, perhaps when we're learning um, in, in, in school or something, will have to stage invitations to dance. Um, but certainly, I think we can also do it today um, as adults who are busy in our, own, in our own lives. We really have to break this habit I think so many of us have now, which is that if I have an extra 20 minutes, I have an extra two hours, I have an extra five minutes, uh, what can I fit into that, right? What activity, what email can I send? What reach out can I do? What task can I finish? Uh, cross off the list, cross off the list, pack it in, pack it in, pack it in, right? That has to break. We need okay. to have spaces that open up in which we, what we think about is not immediately overdetermined. And we can tr we invite ourselves then start saying, okay, big picture. What's going on? What have I heard? How can I, how can I listen more mm -hmm. intimately? All right. And so how much do you think listening is really essential for dancing? I think it's crucial. I think it's, I think it's absolutely fundamental um, because if the, the problem with not listening is that you're coming in already sort of with the busy body. Oh, I just want to hear this or this or this or this, right? And I'm not necessarily like deeply listening. I'm just kind of collecting information. And the hunter is, I need to know this. I need to know this. I need to know this. The dancer opens up has to be open, has to be listening, has to be kind of ready for structures, I think, to bubble up and, and kind of appear uh, and, and, and then to, to kind of respond to those invitations and those, oh, surprise, yeah, wow, I could think about those two things together. You have to be open for that to happen. Yeah, right. and I also... Go ahead, Danny. I also think that this, this creating space to listen, sometimes you don't know exactly what to listen for or what yeah. questions to ask to elicit something to which to listen, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think that creating those spaces is something that is um, increasingly important. We have a study that just recently came out um, where we evaluated how science progresses and how we come up with really big discoveries, like the discoveries that um, are later given a Nobel Prize. And what we find is that those kinds of discoveries are often discoveries that create a whole. So this might sound counterintuitive, but I want you to imagine that knowledge is like a blanket um, and the blanket is laying on the floor. Um, and what a dancer is going to do is they're going to take a corner of the blanket and they're going to stitch it to another corner. Well, now the blanket can't lay on the floor anymore because it's warped, it's, it's changed its shape, right? And what the dancer has created by stitching one edge to another is a hole. And then what comes after that is all of the additional scientists or thinkers or experts saying, now that there's this hole, how do we, how do we connect all that whole um, perimeter now? There's an opportunity for new connections to form that you didn't even realize were there because the blanket was on the floor. And it required the dancer to sort of pull it up and stitch together the two edges for you to see, oh, this could be a cape or this could be um, some wonderful fashion statement. <laughs> uh, right. And that opens opportunities. I that's a I would not have ever thought of that metaphor, but it really does help think about what some of the best Nobel laureates have done 
in terms of defining a whole new discipline because of connecting some existing pieces and in their own work, adding to those pieces and stitching, creating a new thing out of what um, parts of what existed before. Um, I'm going to take it a sidestep though. So maybe you can answer a longstanding question for me. I have heard that when we ask Nobel laureates about the work that they are most proud of, whether they won a prize or didn't win a prize for it, and they say, this was my most generative, most creative work, that frequently we look at their lives and recognize that they were reading broadly, that they were interacting with lots of different people from lots of different places, and that exactly as you've just described, an idea from one space gets connected to an idea from another space. Do you find that's true? Yes, as in the experience of of our most creative ideas. Or just in general, from what you know about uh, creativity and Nobel, you know, the people who produce some of the best work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So from our study, at least, what we find is that it is pulling pieces from different spaces to create this this new hole that then gets to be filled. There are also discoveries that happen on the outskirts or on the frontiers of knowledge is what you would call it. Um, But what this suggests is that there's a way of creating holes or bubbles inside of knowledge that kind of makes the makes the structure seem much larger than it was before. Or changes the structure fundamentally. So we ask different questions than we would have ever asked before and see implications that we would have said. All right. Now, Steve Newman and I, uh, a couple years ago, wrote an article about the whole need to think differently, um, particularly in terms of thinking about the future. And one of our arguments was that teams need to create time where they're thinking about things that are new that have no immediate obvious implications. Just out of sheer curiosity, we even used the word curiosity at the time. I think what that means, what we were advocating is basically creating a space for dancing. So that we say, I mean, I was making the argument with a group this week that you could say, I have no idea that VR technology is ever gonna be applicable to my field but it's a thing out there. I'd like to know a little bit more about it. I'm not going to take a deep dive like a hunter yet because I don't know, but just interest. Is that what you mean by um, dancing? Yeah, I would even say here that there's a little bit of a precondition of the butterfly, um, right? Because the butterfly is sampling widely without assuming they know what to do with the thing or without even necessarily wanting to do anything with the information they have but they're just they're they're willing to kind of move around and as you're describing the reading patterns for example of Nobel laureates um, that strikes me as as butterflying first in order to be be a, hunt, a dancer right you can't right. actually dance if you haven't been doing that because you don't have you don't have the information right you don't have the two sides the two, you know of the blanket to stitch together. All right. So that would say then, as I'm leading a team, part of what I need to do is to create invitations to sample widely to butterfly. And I need to create, I need to have people on my team who can then do hunting when we need them to do hunting or when we know that there's something to do with it. And then I need to create time for dancing. Yes. What I know from the business world is that some interesting innovations often occur because somebody was experimenting. I'm going to use the business language, not your language, and then you can translate it for me. 
somebody was experimenting. They had an idea. They thought it might work. They tested it. They, you know, did some experimentation. It usually doesn't work for the reason that they get the initial test. And they put it on the shelf. Now, like knowledge on the shelf. And then a new set of circumstances comes up or a new need comes up. And somebody remembers that thing on the shelf and brings it in and says, wait a minute, we know some things. We know what to do or what not to do or where to look or some version. And it's that new set of knowledge that really becomes a breakthrough for the next innovation. Now, unpack that for me in your three styles of curiosity. I mean, my first thought is to think about that as in relationship to the network of knowledge. Um, Because to me, that means someone built an edge to a new node. But then that node of knowledge or that piece of information just didn't really have anywhere else to sit. So it just sort of sat there in it kind of its own on its own edge, just just kind of waiting. And what then went what happened was we uh, kind of made some new steps and we have new information that can contextualize that node, that can add all kinds of edges, that can resituate it, that can re kind of deploy it and, and make it mobilizable. Um, so to me, I yeah, I just hear that the network there that there was an edge that was kind of alone for a minute, um, but then we had the context to give it um, other connections. But Danny, right. what about the styles? I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting that the styles themselves, those three at least, don't focus on the the time scale that you're describing, the longevity mm-hmm. of knowledge of something that might sit on the shelf for a really long time, or might sit in our memories for mm-hmm. a very long time and not come back until we realize that the context is right for it to come back. Um, so I think that that additional dimension of memory isn't explicitly in right. there for these three yet. Right. Um, but I do think what's key and what we talk about a little bit is that um, it's important for for each of us to understand and learn increasingly how to move from one style to another. And I think that's going to, um, that provides some of that longevity right. that eventually right. can bring in the memory. Yeah. I Where I thought you might go with this, much better than I'm going to do right at the moment, is that the notion that you see you know, some butterfly in the beginning about possibilities in the beginning of the story. And you see some hunter in that we drilled and did an experiment. We got some data on one applications for it. So that sounds like more of a hunter kind of behavior. And then time goes by and somebody has that node, as you rightly described, Perry. And then we start to connect nodes. So that feels to me like a little bit more of the dancer and we create a new possibility. I love and that. that. And I especially love, I love that the dancer then is not just discovering something new or making something new, but is also bringing in something old. I like thinking about that because so much of the you know, language around innovation and creativity and curiosity presses so much for whatever is new. But actually, you know, real creativity and innovation often requires a lot of kind of older stuff that you bring into a new context. <laughs> so I love that. I think it's interesting. And, you know, whether or not it's one person who exhibits all three styles or just different people involved over the course of this entire thing, you have very different styles. I, I mean, I have no idea. I, could, I couldn't tell you how that actually works. But I think it is interesting as a leader, if you're sitting there thinking, how do I get, I'm going to use the business language, more innovation. How do I get more strategic thinking? How do I get people to see the options that we might pursue? So broaden out our perspective. 
is that you have to think about how you create invitations for butterfly behavior, invitations for hunting behavior, and invitations for dancing behavior. And having those as discrete moments in time where we suspend agendas on other things and we say we're going to spend an hour or a half day or whatever um, engaging in this activity. Have you seen exercises that are useful for one style or another style? Like if you were trying to teach somebody to do more one or the other, what would you tell them to go do? I mean, our hunter-like students really want a very clearly laid out, do this, do this, do this, do this for the homework, for the paper, for the test, for the whatever. Um, and one of the things that I consistently do is say, I'm not giving you the do this, do this, do this, right? I want you to come up with a project that you undertake. Um, you choose the methods, you choose the point, um, you choose the application and surprise me with how you do it. I don't, I don't want, I don't want it. You know, I want it to come across my desk and I want to say, wow, I didn't expect this. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the prompt. <laughs> just, right. see, just see what folks do. Okay. Yeah. In education, there's also um, some effort for professors to ask students to come up with um, their own homework problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so come up with what they think uh, would be useful to ask of some future student, which is really interesting. Um, and I know that the organization uh, or business uh, structure is not the same as a classroom, but but flipping it to say, not here's a structure for you to follow, but what kind of structure should we provide um, and, and start with a blank slate mm-hmm. is a really interesting invitation. Um, I suspect that if we could do more of this, people would be much more excited because one of the things I know is inspiration is having a bit of autonomy. Now, a bit of autonomy to determine how I'm going to do that is both scary because I can make a mistake and I can go way off track um, and at the same time inspiring because it's fun. It's that sense of discovery. So I can imagine as leaders, if you did a little less do one, two, three, four, five, and follow this very precise process that we have laid out for the last five years in some cases and allowed people to be more defining of the problem to be solved or defining of the approach to be used and allow them the space to speculate about what kind of approach might work here. Um, that that would encourage some more of the, um, especially butterfly behavior that we've been talking about. Yeah. And I think at that point, you're going to get not only more diversity of thought, but you're also going to get greater sense of belonging mm-hmm. within your within your um, organization, mm-hmm. both of which are going to increase what it is that you all are capable of doing together, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, granted, we can't do this about everything because if there is a regulatory issue or, you know, a SEC filing or some something like that, following the time-honored process might be a really good strategy with maybe not the place that we want to go off the rails on. But there are so many other places where we could open up a bit of time for the curiosity and allow a little bit of freedom for people to define their own methodology or drill deeply in something or make new connections. Okay. Agreed. Strikes me as exactly what we're looking for when we talk about um, inclusive cultures. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me go now to the individual. All right. So I've done this in the context of team. We talk about it in the context of um, a leader creating space for it. 
let's say I don't have an enlightened leader. It's just me all on my own. I got to figure out my own time for how I'm going to do this. Do you have advice for how I can begin to stretch my own sense of curiosity? Yeah, I mean, I think that the way that um, some of the students even have started talking about this around me is creating moments in the day where I allot time, 10 minutes of my day where I promise myself I will be a butterfly, even if I don't feel like it, um, you know, three hours a day when I will be a hunter and I'll keep at it and I'll and I'll be consistent. And then an hour at the end of the day or the beginning of the day, depending on the way your mind works for some dancing moments. So even structuring uh, your day and your time around envisioning each of these styles um, and the kinds of questions you can ask in those moments, I think is helpful. Um, you just connected to something I have realized both in myself and then I give advice on. So one of the things that I have recently been doing is wearing this lovely aura ring and tracking, um, you know, all the heart rate and stress and looking. I do this in particular to look for moments of relaxation. What are the what am I doing at those moments in time when I'm de-stressing? And I have been doing this experiment so that I can help other people de-stress. That's my whole plan here. In the process, I have learned what it is that helps me de-stress. <laughs> And what you've just defined for me is how to describe it in your framework. So one of the things that you can track pretty clearly on my data is when I have those moments to just read whatever I happen to be interested in at the moment that just happens to come across my desk in whatever feed, and I have the leisure to spend 15 minutes just reading for no reason, that's butterfly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, totally butterfly. And you can watch my stress levels drop as a result, because that's for me is one of the things that works. Okay. Yes, we all have to be hunters. I don't know that we need to teach people how to be hunters, because I think we all know how to drill deeply. We may need some help on the discipline on that one, but we can all do that. And the last piece is for me, I get that another sense of relaxation, de-stressing when I'm making connections, mm. when I'm connecting ideas to people that you can track it in the data and you can track it in my conversations with people. So I know that's one of the things that I love to do and really great fun. But there's a piece of advice from a client from years ago that says, you know, if you're looking at how do you raise your visibility or how do you increase your network? that one of the exercises to do at the end of every day is to stop and say, what did I see, learn, or hear today that, or do that somebody else would want to know about it, know about, and send the email, short, brief email with that data point or observation. That's dancing. And what a great exercise to do at the end of the day to just stop and think kind of, what did I, how does it all fit? What did I learn today? How does this go together? And who would want to know that? And it's win-win for your brain. It's a win-win for creativity and curiosity. And it's a win-win for your reputation. So yeah, love that. you're smart yeah. in those observations. I love okay. that idea too. All right, great. Okay, let me turn to um, a complex topic that everybody is curious about. And I can't resist this one in just the last couple of minutes. Danny, you're a specialist in neuroscience. 
everybody wants to know, what do we know about how the brain works? So can you give us a quick five minute thing? What do we need to know about the neuroscience here? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the very simplest hypothesis that you could have is that there's a piece of the brain somewhere, who knows where, um, that is the curiosity piece. And when you're curious, that is the piece of the brain that becomes activated. Um, and if your piece is not activated enough, maybe you can... Um, you know, learn some skills to help activate it more. So that would be the simple hypothesis. Unfortunately, it turns out um, that science is, is, or the human brain is not very simple. And there isn't a single piece of the brain that is the curiosity piece of the brain. There's a whole set of different regions that are performing different functions that all communicate with one another in this intricate pattern or network um, that allows it, that is active when we are curious. Where the neuroscience is right now is trying to figure out which pieces, which parts of that network are um, supporting sub-processes of curiosity. Um, so which of them are about the motivation to ask the question, which of them are about the sort of negative feeling of missing information, um, can get sort of sad and, and have a negative affect about missing information. Um, there are other components of um, experience, of the satisfaction of getting a new piece of information. So what uh, neuroscientists are doing right now is trying to figure out how each of those subcomponents of curiosity are playing out inside of that network. Wow. We've got a ways to go then, I think is what I heard you say. All right. Fabulous. Yeah. I love that. Um, Danny, I have to give you a compliment that, well, both of you, Perry as well, really good at taking very complex data analysis papers and drilling that down into something somebody can remember and actually understand. All right. Two minutes, one minute for each of you. I love to ask, just because it's a fun question, what takes you out of your comfort zone? So Danny, what takes you out of your comfort zone? <laughs> um physically scary experiences going very high, for example, okay. takes me right. out of my comfort zone. All right. Any secrets to surviving that? Or is it just avoid Enjoying it? Enjoying the view. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. Perry, how about for you? What takes you out of a comfort zone? Um, being in a, in a highly social environment. So I'm a, we're both very introverted. Uh, and so, so things in which, in which there's a high cost, high reward and need to be in front of people. That's, that's always out of my comfort zone. Uh, but I try to, I try to anchor in what, what brought me there. Right. So if it's, if it's about the work that I'm really interested in talking about, if it's about the people I really want to connect to, um, what brought, what brings me there and let's anchor there and, the, and then, then I can negotiate it. Yeah. Anchor and purpose. Why is this important? Or right. scan the horizon and focus on the horizon and not necessarily the thing that's right in front of you. Great answers. I love it. This has been a fabulous conversation, Perry and Danny, as I knew it would. Thank you very much. You. So my guest today, Perry Zern, um, the Associate Professor of Philosophy at American University and the author of Curiosity and Power, The Politics of Inquiry. Danny Espasset, uh, Professor of Bioengineering at University of Pennsylvania. And both of them, authors of the books, we have been talking about Curious Minds, The Power of Connection. Fabulous. I still think the highlight for me out of all of this is to think about the three styles and the ways in which we could invite people to engage in three different patterns of curiosity. Um, the butterfly sampling information without knowing why we would use it, the hunter drilling deeply to understand all there is to understand about something, and the dancer who's connecting the dots between bits of information in unusual ways that no one anticipated before. So 
Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. And join us next week for another episode in How to Get Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.